I invite you once again to open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. We're just going to be putting in there, and we're going to be looking throughout the Word of God as we seek to begin an exposition of the Ninth Commandment. The Ninth Commandment reads, verse 16 of Exodus 20, You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Now we have noticed all along in our study of the Ten Commandments that each one of God's commandments is grounded in something that is sacred to God. We saw the first commandment addresses the sanctity of God's being. We are to have no other gods but Jehovah. He is the only one. He is to be set apart as the only God. The second commandment, the sanctity of God's worship. We are to bring into the worship of God only those elements that He has prescribed and none other. Third commandment addresses the sanctity of God's name, that we're not to use it unworthily or emptily. It's the august name of God. We treat other people's names, hopefully, with respect. How much more should we treat the name of God? The fourth commandment addresses the sanctity, the sacredness of God's day, that it belongs exclusively to Him. And then in the fifth commandment, we saw the sanctity or the sacredness of God-ordained authority. We are to give due respect to all the authority structures that God has placed over us. And then we saw in the sixth commandment, the sanctity of life, that we are to nurture and we are to protect others as the image of God. And then we saw in the seventh commandment, the sanctity of marriage, that bond that God had created with the first man and the first woman. We are to guard the union that God created to be holy. And then the Eighth Commandment, the sanctity of private property. We are to honor what belongs to other people. And then we go ahead, skip ahead to the Tenth Commandment. We will consider the sanctity of the heart. Thou shalt not covet. We must be satisfied with God and with God alone. Now this morning we come to begin to consider the ninth commandment, and that addresses the sanctity of truth. We are to honor, we're to defend, we are to speak, we are to live the truth. So today it is our privilege to begin pondering the ninth commandment. This commandment, even as all of the others, like it, does not stand in isolation from the other commandments. It has logical and practical ties to all the others. Clearly, it addresses our use of the tongue, our tongue. And in this respect, it is similar to the third commandment. There, we're we're using the name of God. Here, we're using our tongue before men, but in the presence of God. But it also flows out of our duty to obey 
the first commandment. We are to have no other gods. And if, we have, if God is our God, we're going to speak the truth because He is the God of truth. Since life and death are in the tongue, Solomon tells us, the ninth commandment is tied practically to the sixth commandment. We may injure, we may hurt people with the use of our tongues. The eighth commandment, which forbids theft, informs the ninth commandment, since we may steal with the misuse of our tongue. Steal actual things or or steal things that belong to people, their reputation or whatever. In several places, the Bible calls or refers to God as a God of truth. He created mankind in His image to be a people of truth. The Bible also teaches us that with tragic consequences, we exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever Amen. And the creature for whose worship and service we abandoned the God of truth is the devil. Jesus calls him, in fact, the father of lies. When we sinned in Adam, we chose Satan over God. And by that fateful choice, we became the spiritual children of the arch liar. That we were conceived as liars is stamped upon our birth certificate by the word of truth, the Bible. The psalmist describes us as the wicked who are estranged from the womb, who go astray at birth, speaking lies. This is our dreadful condition by God's judgment upon our fallen first parents. It doesn't make for a very pretty resume as we see the kind of people we natively are apart from the grace of God and how we need the saving grace of Jesus Christ to give us new tongues. But if you're a Christian, a great change has taken place in you by the grace of God. You were once a child of the devil, now you're a child of God. You've exchanged families. You've exchanged destinies. You've been adopted by your Heavenly Father, born again and indwelt by His Spirit, who is called the Spirit of Truth. No longer are you a a child of your lying father. You are now a member of God's family. Old things like loving and speaking lies have passed away. New things have come. Fact is, you're still tempted to lie, and sometimes you do. And then the grace of God in Christ leads you to repentance. But if you're a Christian, no longer does falsehood define you. God's grace in Jesus Christ has given you a truthful heart and tongue. It is with this great change in mind that we are commanded by the Apostle Paul to put on the new self which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth, laying aside falsehood, we are to speak the truth, each one of us, with our neighbor, for we are members of one another. As we approach our study of the Ninth Commandment, we must ask ourselves the question, 
Who is this God who commands truthfulness from all men? Well, He is the God who grounds His command for truth in His creatures, in His own being. Deuteronomy 32 and verse 4. The rock, His work is perfect, for all His ways are just. A God of faithfulness, or if you have a King James Bible, a God of truth and without injustice, righteous and upright is He. Truth is sacred because it is an attribute of Him who is the God of truth. And we are to bear the family likeness, you see, both by our first creation, which was lost, and renewed by the second creation in Jesus Christ. The ninth commandment requires us to live truthful lives. And brethren, how relevant that is in our day when all around us we see truth assaulted. We see it relativized. Or we see it just plainly denied. There, there is no such thing as truth. That's what, that is part of what it means to live in a post-Christian society. The Word of God is no longer the standard. The law of God is not the rule. It's every man does what? What's right in his own eyes. Deceit and falsehood is regarded almost as a virtue today, expected by most people and even applauded by some. I suggest to you that the world is awash in lies. And into this morass of falsehood, God speaks the ninth commandment. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Now, you may be tempted to dismiss God's demand for truth as just an outdated command that He gave to the nation of Israel. You may regard Old Testament law as passe, that now we live in the modern world in an enlightened new era, that each person has his own truth. Or maybe your rejection of the Ninth Commandment, if you so reject it, is framed according to common teaching that's going on in the church even today, that we are no longer under law, but we are under grace. Because Jesus, they say, came to do away with the Old Testament law. Well, if that's your thinking, I want you to think again. Jesus has no less concern for truth now than he had in Moses' day, that right and wrong are not subject to change. Beside the fact that he and the Father are one, unchangeably committed to the same law that flows from their immutable character, didn't Jesus, who asserted that he came not to destroy the law but to fulfill it, Somewhere call himself the way, the truth, and the life? Jesus, is he not the incarnation of truth itself? The inspired apostle John thought so. 
First, or John chapter 1, verses 1, 14, and 17. In the beginning was the Word. And that's the pre-incarnate, eternal second person of the Trinity who became flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 17. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Now this expression, full of truth, it here regards especially the Lord Jesus Christ as a living embodiment of all of the Old Testament messianic prophecies, that He indeed is truth personified. All of the prophets spoke of Him coming, and here He comes, and He is the embodiment of all of the truth. When Pilate sneered, what is truth? He denied the most essential of all truths, that is, that Jesus is truth, and as truth, He is the life, and He's the only way to heaven. Surely our Lord had this in mind when He stated in John 8 and and verse 32, And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. He's talking to those who denied the truth of who he was. And Jesus says, you need to know the truth. And when you do know the truth, you'll be freed from the shackles of lies that you've been living all of your life. People who deny the existence of God often logically deny the existence of timeless objective truth. And yet, we observe the illogic of such persons, they who say, no God, no truth, they who excuse their freedom to lie usually demand strict truthfulness from other people in their dealings with them. You cannot deny truth and expect truthfulness. And brethren, we cannot escape the ninth commandment. The Bible teaches that God has written His truth by way of creation upon the hearts of all men. We have this judicial faculty placed within us. The government of God, we call it conscience. Now, conscience is subverted and perverted by lies and by sin. We still have that judicial faculty. We may call good evil and evil good, bitter sweet and sweet bitter but we still have that faculty, and there's still a dim reflection of the Ninth Commandment upon our hearts. We expect truth in some fashion, especially that people be truthful with us. You see, we naturally desire the security and sense of well-being that is the fruit of truth, of honesty, of integrity. But we live in a crooked and adulterous generation in no small part because we reject the demands of the Ninth Commandment in the favor of lies. 
Demands that would make this world a far happier place if we were people of truth. <coughs> so with that introduction, we come to our first heading in our study, and that's all we're going to be looking at this morning. <coughs> we're going to look at basic questions raised by the Ninth Commandment. <coughs> You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. First of all, we're going to ask, what is a witness? Secondly, what does it mean to bear false witness? And thirdly, who is my neighbor? First question this morning. What is a witness? What does it mean to bear witness? Well, the Bible has a lot to say on this, and we're just scratching the surface but first of all, a witness is ordinarily used of a person or object that provides testimony. It gives formal confirmation to something. Used in a number of ways. It was used in the 30th chapter of Genesis, or the 31st chapter, of a heap of rocks that witnessed the covenant between Jacob and Laban, that they wouldn't do any harm to each other. Genesis 31, verses 44 and 5 and 8. So, now come. Laban says, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. This inanimate pile of, of rocks but it's covenants made in the presence of God. And it bears authority. And they should shiver to think about violating it. Verse 45, Then Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. Verse 48, And Laban said, This heap is a witness between you and me this day. You see, there's a binding contract here of non-aggression and peace toward one another. Secondly, a witness solemnly testified in legal or business transactions. We see this beautifully in the book of Ruth, where Boaz takes Ruth to be his wife, and all the responsibilities that go with her, even taking Naomi, her mother, to, mother-in-law, to, to care for her. Ruth 4.10, Moreover, I have acquired Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malan, to be my wife, Boaz speaking here, in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance, so that the name of the deceased may not be cut off from his brothers or from the court of his birthplace. And there's at least ten men there. And he says, you are witnesses today. You've seen these things, you've heard them. You can bear testimony to what's being said and what's being done here. Thirdly, a witness confirms that Jehovah is the only God against the claim of the existence of false gods. Isaiah 44 and verse 8. God says through the mouth of Isaiah, Do not tremble and do not be afraid. Don't, be, don't tremble at these false gods. They have eyes that don't see and ears that don't hear. They have hands that can't do anything. You have to nail them up so they don't fall over. 
Do not tremble and do not be afraid. Have I not long since announced it to you and declared it? So God is taking an oath here. And you are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? Or is there any other rock? God who is omniscient says, I know of none. Fourthly, a witness gives formal testimony in a law court. Leviticus 5 and verse 1. If any, if a, you know, if a person sins after he hears a public adjuration to testify, when he is a witness, whether he has seen or otherwise known, if he does not tell it, he knows what's going on, but he refuses to speak, then he will bear his guilt. He'll be liable to punishment for being silent when commanded to bear witness. Numbers 35.30 If anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death at the evidence of witnesses, but no person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness. You see, it's by the mouth of two or three witnesses that every matter is confirmed. You see, capital punishment was carried out as a result of two or three witnesses that say the same thing about the guilt of the person. And we see this in the, the Jews before Pilate. Pilate therefore said to him, that is to Jesus, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. He hears the testimony that Jesus is the Messiah. He hears it, and if he's been given grace to believe, he believes it. That's why Paul writes what he does in 1 Timothy 6 and verse 13. I charge you, Timothy, in the presence of God, who gives life to all things. You see, this is a formal charge that, that Paul is making, fearful. Who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate. You see, Jesus, as it were, was called on the carpet by that human potentate, and he gave testimony to the truth that I am indeed the king. I was sent for this purpose. So witness is ordinarily used of a person or object that provides testimony. Secondly, a witness is someone who testifies to the truth of Christ in the gospel. And we see, brethren, that the triune God is witness to Christ and to the truthfulness of the gospel. First of all, Jesus is a witness who testifies to the truth of himself and of his word. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 5. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness the firstborn of the dead and ruler of the kings of the earth. And he proved he who he, he said he was by being raised from the dead. He's a faithful witness testifying from God. John 8 and verse 14. Jesus answered and said to them, Even if I bear witness of myself, I'm a lone witness to myself. Notice Jesus says, 
My witness is true. Well, how can you, without the testimony of other witnesses, he's not talking about his words and his works here. He's just talking about his self-revelation. How can his testimony be true? For I know where I have come from and where I am going. See, he's omniscient God. But you do not know where I am from or where I am going. Secondly, God the Father is a witness who testifies that eternal life is in his Son. 1 John 5, verses 9 through 13. If we receive the witness of men, he's arguing from the lesser to the greater, the witness of God is greater, for the witness of God is this, that he has borne witness concerning his Son. The one who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar. It's a fearful thing. By our unbelief, we're calling God a liar because he says that Jesus is his son. He is the Savior. Because he has not believed in the witness that God has borne concerning his son. And the witness is this, that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. It's nowhere else. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. John says, these things I have written to you. He's bearing testimony to God. You who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. Believe the witness. Don't believe the feelings. Believe the witness. Thirdly, the Holy Spirit is witness concerning Christ and His truth. <clears throat> 1 John 5, this time verse 7. And is, it is the Spirit who bears witness, because the Spirit is the truth. But notice, secondly, the apostles were witnesses who testified to the truth of the gospel, both by word and miracle. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Now notice it was confirmed by testimony. After it was at first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard, God also bearing witness with them both by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His own will. You see, when, when you reject the gospel, you're rejecting the witness of God. As John says later, you're calling Him a liar. He confirmed His word by His miracles. The apostles who He sent out they testified by word and confirmed with miracles. We say, well, we don't have miracles today. You have them recorded in the Bible. It's as if you saw them with your own eyes. We have a more sure word of prophecy, Peter says, given to us. Thirdly, all Christians are witnesses who are to testify to the truth of Christ and His Gospel. 1 John 4 and verse 14. And we have beheld and bear witness. Now, I, I think John's primarily speaking here of the apostles. But it's true to those whom he wrote. 
that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. We know this is true what else John wrote in Revelation 2 and verse 13. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, Jesus calls him, my faithful one who was killed among you where Satan dwells. You see, he was killed because he bore witness. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1. Since therefore we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us. They're not watching us, cheering us on, as some want to think. No, in the previous chapter they had borne witness to their faith by their actions. We have those who by what they have done, we have recorded for them how they live. They are witnesses that we must heed. We know that all Christians are to be witnesses because of what Jesus prayed in his great high priestly prayer. He says, I do not ask in behalf of these alone, that is, the, the disciples there, when Jesus is praying, for these alone, but for those also who believe me, believe in me through their word. That's us today. It was their word to others, to others, and to others. And how many generations down of faithful witnesses? We heard the gospel, and we were saved. Well, we're to bear witness. Second question, what does it mean to bear false witness? Much more briefly. We've seen it implied in what we read before. A false witness, brethren, is a person who deliberately gives false testimony. He knows the truth, and he lies. Leviticus 19.11 You shall not steal, nor deal falsely, nor lie to one another. That's the general application of the Ninth Commandment. More specifically, and you shall not swear falsely in my name, so as to profane the name of of your God. You, we profane the name of God when we swear to the truth, when we're living a lie. We're saying some, a lie that is true when it's not. I am the Lord. It's a fearful thing. Here it brings us right back to the, the third commandment, doesn't it? Exodus 23, verses 6 and 7. You shall not pervert the justice due to your needy brother in his dispute. If you don't understand what I mean in the negative, let me put it in the positive. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent or the righteous, for I will not acquit the guilty, God says. What are some examples of false witnesses? I trust a couple come to your mind. Remember Naboth, he, or, or uh, Ahab, he wanted Naboth's vineyard. Well, Naboth isn't going to sell the vineyard. He's not going to give it away as part of his family inheritance. He's a righteous man holding on to it to give to, to those that would be born after him. Well, Ahab wants it, and he goes to Jezebel and tells her about it. And she says, aren't you the king? Can't you get anything you want just by dint of your authority? I'll tell you what I'll do. Don't worry about it. Just sit down. Don't worry. So what does she do? She goes out, and she gets... 
some false witnesses. She has a party thrown, a feast. And Naboth is invited to the feast. And she has a couple of scoundrels stand up and say at that feast, Naboth cursed God and he cursed the king. And so what do they do? They took Naboth out, they stoned him to death, and Ahab got Naboth's vineyard. And then he met Elijah, but that's another story. And the most egregious false witnesses that were raised up were during the time of our Lord Jesus Christ. Men enlisted to utter lies about Jesus before the rulers of Israel for the purpose of condemning him to death. Matthew 26, verses 59 through 61. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying... Are they after the truth here? Is this man really what he says he is? Kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus in order that he might, they might put him to death. And they did not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward... But later on, two came forward and said, This man stated, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And of course, he was talking about the temple of his body. He wasn't talking about the physical structure. And what he said was true. He was put to death and he was raised again in three days. Brethren, we should not be surprised that God commanded the punishment of false witnesses Proverbs 19 and verse 5, A false witness will not go unpunished, and he who tells lies will not escape. In fact, a false witness was to suffer the punishment that he sought to bring on the one that he falsely accused. Deuteronomy 19 verses 18 and 19, And the judges shall investigate thoroughly. And if the witness is a false witness, and he has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him just as he had intended to do to his brother. Thus you shall purge the evil from among you. You can't allow that to exist. Punishing someone because of false testimony. It brings the wrath of God upon a nation. Brethren, we'll see in a future study that the practical implications of the Ninth Commandment far exceed its narrower legal definition. In fact, if this commandment went no further than commanding truthfulness and forbidding false testimony in the courtroom, most people could honestly say that they've never broken this commandment. Ah, but the law is exceedingly broad, as we will see. We have one final question to answer be raised by the Ninth Commandment. Who is my neighbor against whom I am not to bear false witness? Well, first of all, Christian brethren are our neighbors. Spiritually speaking, they are our closest neighbors. We're in the same spiritual family. But secondly... All men, non-Christians as well as Christians, are our neighbors. Galatians 6 and verse 10. So then, while we have opportunity, Paul writes, let us do good to all men, and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. Not just narrowly to Christians, but widely to all men. 
We're to be like our Heavenly Father who causes the rain to fall and the sun to rise on the unjust as well as the just. Paul, Paul's command assumes that we are our brother's keeper in the widest sense. And this includes all people with whom we come in contact and have dealings with. And when it comes to Christian ethics, brethren, we are to regard even our enemies as our neighbors. It doesn't give us an out to lie about them and seek to do them dirty. No. Remember the parable of the Good Samaritan. And Jesus is the Good Samaritan. He does good to sinner as well as saint. The Ninth Commandment leaves us no excuse to bear false witness against anyone, friend or foe. Brethren, this is the, the true Christian ethic. But brethren, contrast Islam. It permits Muslims to lie if the liar intends to do good to others by his falsehood, or if he desires to inflict evil upon non-Muslims. He doesn't have to tell the truth about them. Now, it used to be that all persons entering public office in the United States, whether or not they were Christians, were required to confess allegiance to the U.S. Constitution by solemnly swearing upon a Bible. As an American Christian, I find it disturbing that this apparently is no longer required. Years ago, former U.S. Congressman Keith Ellison was the first to be sworn into his congressional seat by placing his hand not upon the Bible, the book which demands truthfulness, but upon the Koran, which permits lying. Righteousness exalts a nation. But sin is a reproach to any people. How crucial then that only truth be allowed in courtrooms by witnesses as well as by plaintiffs and by defendants and their attorneys. A principled unswerving commitment to maintain truth and integrity can hardly be overestimated. It can't be overstated, really. Not in any culture, in any society that believes in the rule of law. Any people that allows truth to be subverted by falsehood in the name of political correctness is under God's judgment. And I suggest that allowing wokeness in the courtroom, the judge is not according to truth, but according to skin color is overthrowing justice in America. In an article entitled Bearing False Witness, attorney John Swindle, unfortunate name for a, an attorney, John Swindle, has written, Our judicial system is based on an adversarial model where the ultimate goal is to find the truth of an underlying disputed matter. Direct examination, cross-examination, and the rules of evidence assist the judge or jury in determining what happened or what needs to happen. Most legal disputes in America, both civil and criminal, are born when two parties have a different view or opinion of an important issue. 
He writes further, however, there are circumstances when a witness takes an oath in court and lies about a material issue in the case. This is different from the testimony of witnesses that is inconsistent or contradictory. Lying in court is a crime. We call it perjury, he says. Our contemporary perjury statutes were originally derived from the ninth commandment, thou shalt not bear false witness. In the Old Testament, Swindle goes on to say, the book of Exodus provides, you shall not spread a false report, you shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness, you shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit, siding with the many so as to pervert justice, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. Exodus 23, verses 1 and 2. He goes on, the brilliant legal scholar Alan Dershowitz, who's professor of law at Harvard University, I think he's retired now, Harvard University, has stated, I think the most serious form of perjury is the biblical prohibition against bearing false witness against an innocent person. Swindle goes on to say, Bearing false witness in a criminal case is serious business and should be addressed more often than it is. There are men and women behind bars today based on perjured testimony of witnesses at trial. I cannot think of a greater injustice than this. Well, what does this say to us by way of a few concluding observations this morning? Just two, addressing two groups of people here this morning. First, I address Christians. Christian, you have been saved from your former deceit to live truthfully. You were born a child of the father of lies. You've been born again by the spirit of truth to follow him who is the truth. Ephesians 4, 22 through 25 that in reference to your former manner of life, Paul's writing to the Ephesians, saying this is what you were like before you were converted by the grace of God. That in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbors, for we are members of one another. Now, if you're a true Christian and you love the truth, if you're a true child of your Father in heaven, you will hate lying because God hates lying. Proverbs 6, verses 16 and following. I quote by just a few of these six things, indeed seven, which are an abomination to God. A lying tongue and a false witness who utters lies. Verse 16. 
Dear brothers and sisters, you cannot bear a true witness if you embrace common lies current in our world today. Very common lies. Lies that are even gaining traction in the church. What lies? That gender is self-determined. If you're a boy and you want to be a girl, you just identify as a girl and you become a girl. And the lies that go along with perpetrating that lie by calling them their preferred pronouns. That's a lie. You are bearing false witness when you do that. It's not in a law court, but it should be in the court of your conscience saying, I can't do that. That's telling a lie. The one who wants to call himself Jane is a John. You don't call him Jane. Well, I'm not being nice if I don't call him what he wants to be called. Truth has a higher claim upon you than the perverted opinion of someone who's living a lie. Or that fetuses are not living humans. They're just a blob of material. Everybody that stands against pro-life and for abortion, they know in their consciences that that little one being formed in the tummy of that mommy is a human being, a living human being. They didn't become a living human being when they gasped their first breath. Well, that's why they have to shriek from the mountaintops, as it were, to try to drown out their own conscience that says, Thou shalt not kill. Or that stealing is okay. All these rich people, smash and grab, that's fine. They got it, I need it, I want it, I'll take it. It's not stealing, it's just redistribution of wealth. The critical race theory is biblical. It has warrant from the Word of God. That there's the oppressed and there's the oppressors. And if you fit certain qualifications... You are, whether you want to be or not, oppressed or you're an oppressor. Or that all religions are acceptable to God. It's amazing how many people in the professing church believe that today. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. We need to have a reality check, a truth check, don't we? In the church, maybe even our own hearts. Second, I speak to non-Christians here. As a liar, you will be punished forever in hell if you don't repent. You were born a liar. You haven't escaped telling lies. You came forth from the womb speaking lies. You lied to your mommy and daddy 
when you were very, very little. Nobody had to teach you how to tell a lie. And if you don't think you're a liar, then there's really no hope for you at this point. You have to see yourself as you really are. This law comes to show us our sins so that we will see that we need a Savior. Not to pat ourselves on the back and say, I'm not a liar. No, the law was never given to redeem us. It was given to show us our sins so that we would seek a Savior. It tells us how we're supposed to live, and it shows us how we're not living how we're supposed to live. It's righteous in giving the command, walk this way, but when we walk the other way, it shows us our sin. It shows us we need someone who kept the law for us. We, we need a righteous substitute. We need one who perfectly obeyed the commandments, and one who died under the wrath of God for those who disobey those commandments. We need His righteousness, and we need our sins pardoned. Revelation 21 and verse 8, But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in a lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. See, this is serious business, is it not? Maybe you're like that one spoken of in Psalm 10. The wicked in the haughtiness of his countenance does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. He, he tries to think God out of existence. I don't want there to be a God, and therefore I'm not going to pay any attention to my conscience or to other people. I'm just going to live as if there is no God, and I'm going to stick my fingers in my ears and go, ah, 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 when people start talking to me about Christ. He says to himself, well, I guess there really is a God. God has forgotten, okay, he's not going to remember me. You're not going to remember what I've done. Maybe there is a God, but maybe he's forgetful. He's hidden his face. He, he will never see it. That's what the unconverted man says. The psalmist asks the question, Why has the wicked spurned God? That is moral insanity. To spurn God, you think you're going to win against Him? He has said to Himself, Thou wilt not require it. Brethren, that argument has never been won on the other side of the grave. So my question to you is not whether you're a liar or not. We Christians, we struggle with being Liars were not what we once were, but there's still that seed of falsehood within us by way of re remaining sin. And we're not walking close with the Lord. Sometimes the, the default detour is to go in the direction of falsehood and lies. And we have to continually be brought back to the ninth commandment by the grace of Christ and brought to confess our sin. 
So the question isn't whether you're a liar or not. We're all liars. But what are you going to do about it? There is one who spoke the truth always in his heart and with his lips and demonstrated truthfulness in his life. And he stands in heaven on behalf of those who have lived only lies and falsehood. You trust in him. His righteousness gets credited to your account and your sins get credited to him and he paid for them on the cross. So let's get honest with ourselves. The law is the great leveler of mankind. We're all guilty. And the grace of God is the great leveler of all mankind. We all need the grace of God. But you have something you say, I don't know, this kind of rubs me the wrong way. Well, may Christ speak to your heart. May he send his spirit and slay the enmity that's in your own heart. And that you'd throw down the weapons of your warfare and you would bow your knees before him, your face in the dust, and say, God, be merciful to me, the liar. And if you do that, he'll raise you up on your feet and you'll walk and you'll leap and you'll praise God and you'll go home justified. Let's pray. Oh God, take this stammering message this, mo- this morning. We pray that you would lend almighty power to it. You would clothe it with gospel grace and power and you'd bring it home. We pray to our consciences that we would see who we are and what we need. We would turn from our lies and confess that we are liars And we would go to Jesus Christ and say, Lord, give me a new heart. Give me new lips. Give me a heart that loves the truth. Give me lips that speak the truth. May my life be a reflection of you who are the truth. Do what only you can do by your grace in this hour. We ask, O God, that we might give all the glory and praise to you who has taken mercy and shown pity to us who are sinners, for we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.